a sip instead of yours. If you're looking for a way to get more positive things going into your life, I'd encourage you to check out our friends at Christian Living Magazine. You can find out everything you need at ChristianLivingMag.com. Well, hey, good morning, everybody. Drop a line in the chat. Say, everybody, say hello to everybody else. Uh, make everybody feel welcomed. And, and uh, you know, if you want, go ahead and share it. Send it out. Let other people enjoy this. Uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not speaking a lot of uh, Hebrew or Aramaic. There's a couple little things, but nothing like crazy. So, I mean, that entertainment value is gone for the day. But hopefully people will learn something. You never know. So, good morning. It is... I just got an email from a banker in some place that doesn't exist, at least not here in America. Okay, fun. All right, so <laughs> it is uh, Saturday, February, what is that, 6th? Yeah, February 6th, uh, 2021. I no longer get to do the Barbara Walter jokes, so it's okay. It's good. We are on the third lesson into the gospel according to John. This is Come and you will see, and we're wrapping up the first chapter of John. So three lessons just to get through the first chapter of John. There's a lot of stuff. There's a lot of stuff in here. So we're, we're just going to kind of pump right through this and, and get going. Get your coffee or your tea ready, whatever, whatever's your bag. Go for it. It's good. Let's get into this. All right. Again, like usual, we're going through the ESV translation Chapter 1, verses 35 to 51 in the Gospel according to John says, The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and, and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, you were under the fig tree. I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered him, Because I say to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? 
you will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. All right, so that's that's the, the scripture, the verses that we're going to be going through today. There's a lot of different little nuances and things inside of here. Um, some of it sounds like he's speaking in riddles. Some of it, I mean, already, everything we tend to see of Jesus, it, it comes off almost as riddle-esque, but when you dig into it and you can find some of the subtle nature and the nuances and things that they understood and would recognize as normal and pointing to certain references, uh, once we start looking at that, it tends to make a lot a lot of sense. It really does. You know, it's Jesus has this great way of communicating. It's almost like he's God and understands how people will, will think. <laughs> All right, let's, let's get into this. It breaks down into two basic parts. Uh, 35 to 42, we see the first disciples. These are the first disciples who start to follow Jesus. And then and 43 to 51, we wrap up with Philip and Nathaniel. All right, 35. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. So the next day, just keep in mind this, again, this, we had this day and then the next day and then the next day again. So this was the day after Jesus was was uh, baptized with the Holy Spirit. Like the Holy Spirit came down and rested upon him. Uh, John the Baptist recognized that. Okay, so there was that. That is, this is the day um, following that, the Spirit descending onto Jesus and bearing witness to Jesus being the Christ right, or the Messiah, either way. Two of his disciples, we see right here, John was standing with two of his disciples, that John is John the Baptist, not John who wrote the gospel, but John the Baptist. And there's two of his disciples, we're going to see in verse 40 that one of them is Andrew. The second one's not named. However, it is very likely, and most most scholars and theologians believe that this is actually John uh, who wrote the gospel, that he was the other disciple that was right there right from the very beginning. 36, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold, the Lamb of God. So we again see John the Baptist declaring that Jesus is the sacrifice that will save the world, that perfect and spotless Lamb, that perfect atonement, right? Again, he he uses that same phrase to grasp the concept that this is the man who will bear the burden of sin and take the rest of that away from all of us, right? 37 to 39. Those two are kind of recappy. 37 to 39. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them. Let's stop for a second. They followed Jesus. These disciples heard that and recognized that John had been preparing the way for Jesus. They were following John and John had been saying, there is one coming after me who is greater than me. I am paving the way for he who's coming. Now he's came. He's here. So why continue to follow the one who's paving the way for the person who's there now? Right? So they, taking that logical leap of you know logic <laughs> and faith, say, all right, it's time. Let's turn and let's follow the one that we should be following. And so they turn and start to follow Jesus. They used sound reasoning skills, and they go and they follow him. Okay, And Jesus said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Now, the rabbi, which means teacher, we see in here in, in the gospel according to John, John translates seven 
Hebrew or Aramaic, depending on the word, but he translates seven terms from either Hebrew or Aramaic and, and translates them into Greek for the reader so that they can understand what's going on. Okay, now some of these people were already potentially Christian, like they already believed, uh, but they were still a little confused by some of the terms. Uh, and so some of them are, are hmm, they're translated into words that still mean things to Christians, but don't necessarily mean things to a bunch of other people. But they're in the day, they meant enough that you could get the concept of what was being said. It, it wasn't just what we would consider like Christianese, right? It wasn't just something to where, oh, you have to have been a Christian for so long to really understand this. If you've been around, you'll, you would understand just from the basic type of terminology what that means. And, and we'll get into that. But he just says rabbi, which means teacher. And that's pretty self-explanatory. Teacher. Right. I, you know, you're teaching, you're teaching. Obviously, he's a religious figure. So he's teaching religion. He's teaching faith. He's teaching going through this. Right. So rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. So if you think about that, the sun comes up, let's say the sun's up, depending on the, the time of year and everything, let's say the sun comes up about 8 o'clock. They count the hours by daylight, okay? So sun comes up 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, there's 4, so that puts it at about 6 p.m., give or take. Could be 5, could be 7, but somewhere around the 6 p.m. time frame. So when you see in the scriptures that it talks about it was this hour, it's not from midnight, it's from daylight. Okay, unless they specifically say in the night, and then it's from sundown. But at this point, it's sun up, so it's about six p.m. Okay, and so they're staying the rest of the time with him. Okay, so Jesus gives them the invite to join them. Right, says, "Come, where are you staying? You know, what what do you what are you seeking? Well, we want to know where are you staying. Well, come." And see. So he gives them that invite to follow and to go with him and to see and to have that relationship, right? Right from the very beginning of this, when we start seeing Jesus in really the, the messianic role, like that Messiah role and the Christ role, he starts doing things in relationship. Everything with him is about that relationship. It's all delved into that. It's all about living with one another. It's all about living with God, living with God the Father. And and just, you know, the Spirit is on him. It is in him. He is the creator element that has come down. And so he's living with and giving them that example, showing that it's all about having that right relationship and living with relationship, both with God's creation, uh, as in those who are made in his image, people, and also with God himself, okay? But he's as soon as he starts doing his ministry here, we start seeing that he's gathering, and he's giving an indication of the importance of living together, living together, which is something that we see throughout the Scripture. We see in Genesis 2.18, uh, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him, because it's not good for people to be alone, right? 2 Corinthians 7, uh, verses 3 to 7. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, 
Our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by coming, by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. It's about needing people. We need people. You know, my daughters, uh, we had this conversation not too long ago. We're made to be relational. We have to have that. We need that that kind of interaction with other people. That's how we're designed. God is a relational being, and he made us in that image as well. We need that relationship. And so it's living with one another. Okay, Not meant to do this on our own. Verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Okay, so one of the two, the first that we see is Andrew, introduced as being one of the first disciples and believers in Jesus as the Messiah, as the Christ. Okay, 41 to 42, he first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. There's a second Hebrew Aramaic, it's really an Aramaic word, but uh, Hebrew Aramaic word, okay, which means... Okay, so this is, he's translating it from Hebrew to Greek, uh, which would mean relatively little, but it also means a lot because the term itself actually just means anointed or anointed one, which sums up the, the Old Testament expectations of the coming Savior. Okay, so in that context, it doesn't mean very much. The anointed or the anointed one wouldn't mean a whole lot to somebody who doesn't understand the scriptures from the Old Testament, doesn't have that Hebrew mindset and concept, okay? But it was a very common thing in basically all religions to anoint, anoint with oil, to do things like that. You know, blood sacrifices, even pagans would anoint with blood or anoint with oil or anoint with water. It was a very, very common symbol, things that was known. And so the anointing made sense. Okay, it's a religious thing, right? To anoint or to be anointed, that's fine. We grab that concept. But the magnitude of that would not completely have been grasped without some further explanation. Which, again, is brought on by relationship. You need to know people, talk to people. We do our part, right? There's still an element that is left for us, right? So God gives that to us to do. It's part of our duty and our job here. Okay, but we see the some of this in, uh, like, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7 is a great example for this. It says, For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the in, <clears throat> excuse me, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Okay. So that brings up the the Old Testament expectations of the coming Savior, right? That's what the anointed means, right? The Christ is the, the fulfillment of the expectations 
of the coming Savior, including the prophecies and everything else. Okay, Now, he brought him to Jesus. Right? We have found, said to him, we have found the Messiah. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas. So not only was Andrew drawn himself to Jesus, believing him to be the Christ or the Messiah, but he was so convinced that he went and brought his brother to him. He went to go get his brother and brought his brother with him to go see Jesus. Now, Simon, the son of John, you should be called Cephas. Here is the third term that we see translated, Cephas. Now, it wasn't uncommon to see God change someone's name to indicate a purpose and a plan in their life, which this shows right up from the very front that Jesus had had known, not just had an indication, but he knew that, that Peter was important going forward. This shows that that having the Spirit, kind of uh, like what we're going to see here in the next section, Jesus showing a foreknowledge. He knows what's going to happen. He knows what is happening. He knows what has happened, and he knows what's going to happen. And we see that here, okay, with this this understanding right here. It wasn't uncommon for them to change it. Let's take a look before we we uh, see what this Aramaic is, uh, but it wasn't uncommon to see. We get a couple examples like Abraham, or excuse me, Abram changing to Abraham, Jacob being changed to Israel. Let's take a look at Jacob changing to Israel in Genesis chapter 32. This is verse 28. Uh, did I miss one? No, that's just yeah, out of order. All right, Genesis 32, 20. And he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. I love that. If if we would just take that concept for a moment and recognize Israel, the name Israel means and essentially means to, to have struggled with God and with men and to have prevailed. God's chosen people have both struggled with him and with other and with men, right? With people, and have prevailed. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. It's crazy. All right. Anyway, so this third word that we changed is Cephas. We see change here is Cephas, which is a name, which means Peter. Okay, it is an Aramaic word. This one's not Hebrew. It is Aramaic specifically, uh, but it is the Aramaic word for rock. And you're changing it to rock. You should be called Cephas, which we see uh, an explanation of this in Matthew 16, verses 16 to 18. Simon Peter replied, excuse me, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Okay, so there was a reason, foreknowledge, a reason that Jesus changed the name of Simon to Cephas, or to Peter, as we would say, right? To Peter. And before we change over, sorry, flip back here. It's, it is an interesting concept to see that Cephas, when we see it in the in, the Gospels and everything else, it's written as Peter. 
It doesn't remain Cephas. They call him Simon Peter. They call him Peter, which is the, the Greek, right? It is the Greek translation for Cephas, which is the Aramaic, which is interesting because when we say names, we don't usually say names in the translation, right? And, and a, a, a humorous, I might get smacked for this, sorry, but whatever. Um, you know, uh, an idea of this is like with, with uh, the Spanish name Jose. You don't call the person Josie, which is how we would pronounce that in English. If we read it like it was an English name, we pronounce it Jose. So it's very interesting when we see a, a name being changed to a, a, a different language that we don't maintain that language. We have actually taken that into the Greek, and we've maintained that as the Greek term, which means Peter. And so we maintain that as Peter, which I, I don't know. It doesn't really mean a whole lot. I'm, it might. From my understanding, there's not much of a reason for that changeover. Um, it's just an interesting thing. It's just one of those things that just kind of, it's always caught my attention is, if he named him in Aramaic, why didn't we keep that in Aramaic? But we didn't. We moved that over into... Um, into the, the Greek with Peter. Interesting. Ah, just an interesting thought. Hey, Sip and Studiers. As you may know, the family and I have been called into missions and are now officially missionaries to the church in Pakistan. Can't tell you how excited we are for this. It's a great opportunity, and we are so blessed for it. But if you've known anybody who's gone into missions, you know, can't do it on our own. We need people to be partnered with us, partnered in prayer, and yes, also in financial support. But there's so much more. If you feel God tugging at your heart, letting you know that he has a plan for you to make an impact in the church in Pakistan, we'd love for you to reach out to us and partner with us. And you can do that and more at chogglobal.org slash dsbrown. That's chogglobal.org slash dsbrown, as in Drew and Sonny Brown. Now, back to the study. Uh, getting into Philip and Nathaniel, verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. So Galilee is, this is the region that's west of the Jordan, um, and the Sea of Galilee, but it's north of Samaria. So if you want to look on a map, uh, you know, an ancient Jerusalem-type map, uh, that's where you're going to be seeing this. Is It's just west of the Jordan and the Sea of Galilee, uh, but it's north of Samaria. It was entirely under the rule of Herod Agrippa, his son Herod Antipas, and then by Herod Antipas's nephew, Herod Agrippa I. Interesting. <laughs> Good to know. Uh Side note, and I didn't put this on on the screen, so you're not going to get a note on this. But follow me was kind of the way that uh, it was how a rabbi would take their disciples. Right? They would actually just come up and say, "Follow me," and this was usually reserved for other for for students. Their, their education system, like you, you get. We could we can equate it to kind of like a college situation. Um, you'd get your certain level of education, and then only the best would move to the next, and then only the best would move to the next, and then they would try to approach certain rabbis and try to say, "Let me let me follow you, let me learn from you, so that I can go and become a rabbi." And so, typical standard was the the rabbi would be approached by someone saying, "Look, I I'm in this level of school, or I've passed this level of school, and I have shown it." I'm doing this. I've learned under so-and-so. Please let me follow you so I can learn under you and get the understanding that you you have and that you teach so that I can teach on what you your teachings. But instead, Jesus is going and 
handpicking people on his own. And he's finding people and just telling them, follow me. Which which is a total change of pace. Shows God, and that's this is something that we can actually take as something that we should understand. God goes and chooses, right? When God says he wants people to follow, he's going and he's choosing people who are going to do things, right? God's going and, and approaching. And this is where... This is where a lot of that Calvinistic belief of God approaches and you don't have a choice is because we see people instantly, God approached and I got it, I go. And I had no choice, I have to go. This is also where we get the Arminian beliefs, so don't have a lot of time for for discussion on this. Calvinism, uh, predestination, in a nutshell, in a very, very condensed, not very poetic nutshell, uh, Calvinism, predestination, you don't have a choice. God approaches you, you say, <gasps> I can't say no, and you go. Arminianism, God approaches you, you have a choice in the matter, you decide to go. Okay, that, that's kind of where this comes. But we still recognize, and both sides tend to, some some Arminians don't, It's some, some Arminian groups say, no, 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 I just chose God. Well, the Bible says that nobody chooses God without God coming to them. And so we start to see that here with Jesus coming out and approaching people and approaching and saying, I choose you. But my point of, the, of getting to this, and it wasn't actually for that, it wasn't a salvation point. This was actually a point of when God calls somebody to a certain type of, I want to say ministry, but I, I'm using that as a very loose term. When God calls you to do something, when God, God calls someone to do something, He's not just waiting for someone to approach him and say, hey, by the way, God, I see a need over here. Can I go, you know, I'll, I'll go take care of this. Oh, okay. You just go, no, no, no. It's not how God works. God recognizes that there's a need, saw the need way off before he even created anything. He recognized that that was going to be a need, and he's put it on somebody, and he approaches that person to go and do. God pulls the people, but God doesn't just pull the people who are in the world's eyes, extremely qualified. God has people who are qualified in ways that we do not understand. Okay? God's calling people. So if God calls you to something and you're sitting there going, I'm not qualified for this, I I would encourage you to take a step back and recognize that uh, neither was any of the disciples. And we we hear this all the time. God doesn't... uh, or God doesn't call the equipped, he equips the called. But in reality, God has been equipping the called from the beginning. Your life situations and things that have happened in your life have been training for you to be prepared and to get ready for where you're going and what he's calling you to do. Okay, I would encourage you in that. And that's actually something that we're seeing here in this, as we are seeing that indication that Jesus is going and approaching people who they don't recognize, but there's something special about them. And Jesus saw it, and Jesus knew it, and he knew it from the very beginning before, right? All right, let's move on. 44 to 45. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of of Joseph. Okay, so Bethsaida uh, is just northeast 
of where the Jordan flows into the Sea of Galilee. I'm sorry, I'm seeing a couple typos in here. I, I do apologize for that, but if you're on the video version, there's a few typos. That's, that's on me. Uh, but it is just northeast of where the Jordan flows into the Sea of Galilee. Now, it says we have found him. This is an interesting point. Uh, this, this indicates that it wasn't just Philip um, that went to find Nathaniel. Okay, we would indicate that um, maybe Peter, maybe John, maybe Andrew, maybe all of them went with him, right? Went with Philip and, and found Nathaniel because this is a we. This isn't just, hey, I have found. Come with me, I have found. This is we have found. So it's most likely a group of people. Indicates that there was multiples. Now, uh, Nathaniel... This this one thing here is one of those parts where people say, well, this is an—the Gospel of John doesn't follow the same line as the other Gospels because it talks about Nathaniel. Who's Nathaniel? Well, Nathaniel is most likely the personal name, which we would consider like the first name, of Bartholomaeus, the son—wow, I'm speaking fun—the son of Tholomaeus. Otherwise, Bartholomew. That one ring a bell? Okay. Nathaniel is probably the first name of Bartholomew, which means the son of Tholomaeus, or Tholomew, right? Okay. Who is linked to Philip in all three synoptic lists of the apostles. And if you want to look those up, have at it. Gave you the scriptures right here. It's Matthew 10.3, Mark 3.18, and Luke 6.14. Philip and Bartholomew are linked together every time. So Nathaniel is probably his name, right? Because we have Bar, son of Tholomaeus, son of Tholomaeus, Bartholomew. There you go. There's there's your connection. Okay. So law and prophets. Okay, this is a, a description of the Old Testament saying, we have found the one who's fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies, the one who they spoke of throughout the entirety of the Old Testament, talking about we have that Savior coming. Okay, this is the entirety of the Jewish scriptures. We see Matthew 5, 17. Oh, actually, you know what? I Let's let's do this first. Uh, one of the synoptics lists of the apostles really fast. We'll do Matthew, Matthew 10, Matthew 10, uh, 2 to 4. Uh, which we said Matthew 10, 3, but we'll go all the way to 10, 2 to 4. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who was called Peter. Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee. John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus. And Thaddeus, Simon the zealot. And Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Uh, but let's take a look at Matthew 5, 17 to see about the the law and the prophets note here. Uh, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Okay, to fulfill them, because we need that perfect sacrifice. Someone has to fulfill it all to hit the mark. To sin is to miss the mark, Right. Unfortunately, the the penalty of missing the mark, even on the first shot and any and every shot, is death. It is eternal separation from God. And so we need someone who can hit the mark 
and be perfect. And the only one that could do that is Jesus, the Son of God, the actual God coming down in human form, right? And so he came to fulfill the law so that he could then die in propitiation for our sins, okay? That's where that comes from. All right, 46. Moving on, 46. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said, come and see. So Nazareth is a small town, and it's it's a really small town. Um, not known for a whole lot, but it's definitely not known for good. We could call it a ghetto, <laughs> right? So that uh, would be kind of the, the terminology we could use today. It, was, it came from the ghetto. Uh, and it was also known that the Messiah would come out of or be born in Bethlehem. So it would make sense that if he's born in Bethlehem, it's going to be coming from Bethlehem, right? But Jesus is coming from Nazareth. Well, we, if you know the Bible, you know that story, born in Bethlehem, uh, but living in Nazareth. Anyway. Uh, we can, we can, we'll go through that at another time. Don't worry about it. Uh, Nathaniel seems to be unbelieving at this point, but goes to witness for himself anyway. So we see 47 to 50. Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathaniel said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, you were under the fig tree. I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, you believe? You will see greater things than these. So now Jesus notes that Nathanael is pure and honorable, which is, is one of those interesting things because that's, if you think, uh, Old Testament, you read through the Old Testament and you see all the shortcomings and constantly falling away from God and always going back and and falling into pagan traps and blah, 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 yada, 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 going over and over and over again. That is not necessarily a description of an Old Testament Israelite or Jew that you would think of, right? And and actually, some of the commentaries that I've gone through make point of that. That's why I bring that up is because they have made point of that. A lot of scholars point that out. That is not, per se, how most, especially religious leaders and religious teachers, would describe Israelites at that point, okay? That is not what most rabbis would say. So it was just kind of an interesting thing. But he points out and says, ah, you are pure and noble and honorable. Okay, he points to a personal knowledge of where Nathaniel was, and Nathaniel immediately believes. Now, this indicates that Nathaniel was actually most likely physically under um, that fig tree, but also indicates that he was aware that there wasn't anyone around him. Nobody saw Nathaniel except probably the group that came to get him to take him to Jesus. There was no way. For Jesus to know is kind of what what Nathaniel's getting at. Is how would you know that? We just got you see me coming up. The other people have not gotten back to tell you where I was yet. How do you know this? Okay. Now the fig tree is kind of an interesting point as well. Uh, the fig tree often serves as a metaphor for Israel standing before God. In fact, we see Jesus talk about and do things to fig trees. It's it is just a meta. It is just one of those things that that's there. Fig trees serve as a metaphor for Israel standing before God. And this in- illustrates that Nathaniel, this is, this is, it's always interesting to see how some of this stuff ties together. Okay. Nathaniel 
sitting under the fig tree illustrates Nathaniel trusting in Israel prior to finding Christ. It's it's so amazing to see some of the symbolism and see how this actually ties together and work. But even better is without arguing. Uh, with no arguing, Nathaniel was uh, likely under that fig tree. But without arguing, he just recognizes, man, you are. You are who they said you are. It's, it's an amazing thing to see that trust shift from Israel to God, to Christ, to Jesus, right? Now, the Son of God and King of King, Nathaniel declares that Jesus truly is the long-awaited Messiah and Christ. Uh, we can see in Zephaniah 3.15, I can't remember the last time I've pulled and uh, used a, a quote and a reference from Zephaniah, so it's fun. We'll, we'll do that. should do that more often, I guess. Uh, Zephaniah 3.15, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies, the King of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. The king of Israel, right? You are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Okay, so Jesus announces that this is nothing compared with what he is going to see going forward. So, yeah, you're amazed and you know I'm the Messiah. You believe simply from my knowing where you were? That's nothing like what you're going to see. And 51... And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened up and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man, which arguably the Son of Man is um, arguably one of Jesus' favorite ways that, to, that he, one of the favorite titles that he had, it was used a lot. So truly, truly, I say to you, we see this, Jesus saying things like this pretty often. Um, it is a solemn affirmation and stressing the authority and importance of what Jesus was saying. So it stresses the authority. Jesus is saying, I have the authority to make the claim, and this is a very important thing. It is a, it is a firm, right? It is, here you go. I got this. Putting it out there. I can say this, and I am saying this. This isn't, Jesus was not coming from today's postmodern worldview where people we're just expected to say whatever they wanted, whatever they feel is now the solid truth, irregardless of whether it's right or wrong to you or for you. My truth is my truth, and you can't, you know, it is solid, therefore. That is not the worldview that Jesus was coming from. That time frame did not have that worldview. People did not think in that manner. And so when Jesus was speaking with said authority, that authority had to come from somewhere. That authority either was given to him by a king, a ruler of some court, some sort. Um, it was either given by the, uh, the, the Jewish council, right, the religious council, or it was given to him by God. That's where the authority would have to come from. Now, we do see Jesus claim to be God. We see Jesus claim to be and, and tell us that he is the Messiah. He goes through and makes several claims, okay, which, by the way, are true. So he has the authority. Okay, so he's taking and he's using that authority. People did not speak of, and that's why in the scriptures they make a point in emphasizing. People were amazed that he spoke and taught as one who has authority. 
because the teachers did not teach as though they had authority, because that is not the worldview that they possessed. That authority had to be given. That authority had to be given by a king, some kind of a ruler, or basically God. And so Jesus speaking as one who has authority was an amazing thing. It was unheard of. It was unseen. Someone had to basically claim to be God to speak with such authority. And that is why we started to see so many have struggles with that. Okay. Anyway, moving on into this section so we can finish this section up real fast. Um, You're going to see heaven opened. This is a reference back to Jacob's dream. We see this in Genesis 28, 28, 12. Uh, And he dreamed and behold, there was a ladder set upon the earth and the top of it reached to heaven and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Okay. So that is a reference to to that dream that Jacob had in Genesis 28. You can read more about that if you like. And then the Son of Man, which again, arguably is Jesus's favorite uh, description. It's a great, great thing. It actually comes from Daniel chapter 7. We see this in verse 13. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient days and he was presented before him. Now, what's interesting here is this this right here is most likely why uh, Jesus used, and, and we keep seeing the term over and over again, the son of man, son of man, son of man, son of man, most likely comes from this actual passage here in Daniel. But what's fascinating with this is the Aramaic used in Daniel for like a son of man, because it is, came one like a son of man. This is bar inash, which means human being. Not just son of man. It is actually just direct human. (laughs) It's a human being. So he's saying, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a human. And he came to the ancient of days, and he was and was presented before him. So this is interesting because when you read descriptions of angels. When you read descriptions of angels, fallen angels, you read descriptions of different things. These do not look human. They talk about having multiple faces, multiple sets of wings, yada yada, feet like hooves. You start seeing some of these different things. That is not human-esque. And so for Daniel to say and make a point of saying, saw one coming down and he looked human. It didn't make sense, but he looked human. That gets translated as the son of man. And that's where we see this reference coming from throughout the New Testament. The son of man, the son of man. I'm the one who came that looked like a human. I'm he. I'm the one who came from heaven. I'm the one who of God who comes as man. This is an interesting thing to, to look into. All right. Takeaway, what can we grab from this? Uh, there's something special and is very noticeable and attractive about Jesus. Now, we we do get some mild descriptions of Jesus as not being a very attractive man. He was very plain and basic. Uh, but there's just something special about him that that emotionally attracts people to Jesus. When he approaches, people recognize something special and are drawn to follow him. 
And we've seen that a couple times in, in this section here. And Jesus is calling for disciples to follow him. And in this section, we see Jesus is now approaching and calling disciples to follow him, to learn and to do life with him and with others. He's not simply looking for a crowd, right? If he wanted a crowd, he could go make some statements and get a bunch of people around him and things would be fine. But he's not looking for a crowd. He's looking for disciples, those to live, do life with, and continue on, right? It's not just get the head knowledge. It is to continue on and to do. He's looking for disciples. Now, when he talks to Nathaniel, he points to references to Israel that are familiar to them, right? He points to things that are in their understanding. When God speaks to us, oftentimes he will speak to us in ways and in references that are things that we comprehend and that we understand, things that we know, okay? And he points to the physical and to the relational, touching both the body and the spirit, okay? The way he speaks to people is, it's all-encompassing, okay? He talks to your soul and he talks to your mind, your body, right, to you. So Jesus, now beginning to speak, in this gospel, anyway, is already pointing back to prophecy and to visions of old that are about him. He's already pointing back to himself from the scriptures of old, pointing to references. Okay, so Jesus is proving and recognizing and speaking in ways, saying, yes, I am that one that you are looking for. I am the one that, that you've heard these references for. Father God, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word and for this, this gospel that we get to learn about Jesus and we get to see and study and, and hopefully recognize things that we haven't recognized before. We get to see the way you approach people and the way that Jesus came and handled himself. We get to see things in a new light. We get to see a new aspect of you, a new aspect of Jesus. And we ask that you approach us, that you touch us, that you mold us into who we are meant to be, who you have called us to be. God, be with us and be with your people. Be with the rest of your people, God. Touch this world. Heal this world. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, hey, thank you guys so much. Uh, hope you guys have a great weekend, a great week, whenever you listen to this. Uh, you know, have a, have a great one. Go out there and impact do something, right? Impact the world. Make a difference. Talk to you guys later. Bye-bye.